In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Hi, this is Sandy. Today's Money Tales guest is Juan Thomas. Juan grew up in suburban Chicago and as an African-American, saw a different level of privilege hanging out with white kids. He felt out of place in both worlds. When Juan attended Morehouse College, he did a deep dive on African-American theological giants, inspiring him to become a servant leader. Juan wanted to be the first black president of the United States. Although that's been taken, he's still committed to political aspirations and is focused on bridging the money differences he sees between black and white communities. Hi, this is Cami. Juan fulfilled his dream to become a practicing attorney. He's on the National Black Lawyers Top 100 Trial Lawyers List, chosen based upon his performance as an exceptional lawyer in the practice area of matrimonial and family law in the state of Illinois. Juan served as the 75th president of the National Bar Association. During his term as president, they co-founded the National Commission for Voter Justice to address voter suppression across the country while advancing electoral reform and civic engagement. Juan has held many other elected and volunteer leadership positions within Illinois and at the national level. Please stick around after the interview for our takeaways from this discussion. Now, on to our conversation with Juan Thomas. Juan Thomas, welcome to Money Tales. We're so glad you're here with us. Thank you for having me. To get this conversation started, we would love for you to provide a brief summary of your life's journey to date, focusing on two or three pivotal moments who really make you the person that you are speaking with us. Well, again, thank you for having me. It's, it's an honor to be with you and your listeners. When I think of two pivotal moments that really impacted my life, particularly when it comes to money and being uh, in a family that provided for me um, in particular, it was my 10th birthday. On October 21st, 1980, my father opened up a restaurant called LT's Chicken and Fish in Aurora, Illinois. And we had my 10th birthday party and his grand opening to his restaurant that day. And that for me was my first example and experience of being part of a family that owned a business, seeing my father try to build that business. My mother was his first employee. She <laughs> worked there after work. Every member of my family, my uncles, aunts, my sister, my brother, and myself at some point over the next 25 years worked in that restaurant in some capacity. So I was responsible after school and high school of 
mopping the floors and changing the fish fryer, the chicken fryer. I took orders. And that's how I made my allowance, particularly during my teenage years. And I saw my family grow and build that business. And so that was a very impactful time in my life and in my family. In terms of a second experience that really shaped my life, it's probably when I went to law school and fulfilled a lifelong dream to become a lawyer. And in 1996, graduated from law school. And because my grandparents, my mother's parents, had been such an integral part of my life, I presented them with my law degree and framed it and hung on their wall until they recently both passed away during the pandemic. Not because of the pandemic, but just related health challenges they both had. And they both were 89 years old. But from 1996 to 2021, my law degree hung in their living room in Yazoo City, Mississippi, which is my mom's hometown. So those two moments really have been integral part of my life and uh, have helped shape me. Thank you, Juan. Will you tell us more about what it was like growing up, specifically around money, and maybe even related to the restaurant, because the restaurant business is a risky one. Oh, yes. And it's very small profit margins. <laughs> I think 3% from what all the experts say. So growing up in a family that owned a business was a lot of um, long days and long nights. Uh, my father worked from can't see to can't see. Candidly, he missed a lot of my um, special moments, like I was in the band. He usually could not attend those band concerts. We didn't do a lot of family trips except to go see my grandparents in Mississippi. He was always working. So my father was present, but he was not always home. And usually when he was home, he was dead tired. Um, He was truly a solo practitioner in a lot of ways. From a money standpoint, I can tell you there was always cash in the house. It was a cash business. Uh, This was before the daily invention of debit cards or electronic transactions that that, that we do a lot today. A lot of folks came in with cash. And so my mom was kind of the bookkeeper and the accountant. And so a lot of my allowance and my teenage needs. Hey, mom, can I get some gas money? Hey, mom, we're going to McDonald's tonight. Can I get extra 10 bucks? They're always handing me cash. And so I always felt blessed and knew that we were a a blessed family. I will not pretend to suggest that that I grew up struggling or wanting for things. I grew up not rich or wealthy, but I grew up comfortable. My sister and I, in particular, did not want for anything. We we both had cars in high school. We didn't have the best cars, but we had a car. And for a lot of families, particularly African-American kids, that was unique. You didn't ask this question, but I'll give you some historical context that I'd like to share. I'm a third-generation African-American college graduate, and that's rare in the Black community. My grandparents, my mom's mom and dad, who I mentioned a few minutes ago, both graduated from college in the 50s and 60s in Mississippi. My grandparents went to Jackson State and Alcorn University. They were educators for 40 plus years. And truly, my family had an appreciation for education and self-development. My grandmother retired as the assistant superintendent of my family's home county school district. My grandfather retired as a middle school principal. He was a coach. 
And so I grew up in an extended family where education was very important. And it wasn't a matter of if my sister and I were going to go to college, it was a matter of where and when. And so because of those historical um, realities within my family, we always were able to provide. And my family was very generous to me. And again, I kind of grew up in a cultural context where other African-American kids in the neighborhood thought that, you know, we were the rich part of the family. That's only in comparison and contrast. It wasn't actually that we were rich, but we were comfortable. What I hear is a, you know, commitment to education and also commitment to hard work. Juan, would you tell us a little bit more of the story of your dad starting LT's Chicken and Fish? Was he a restaurateur before? What drove this, again, as Sandy said, high risk, low profit margin interest? There's a joke that I heard years ago that candidly applies to my dad. And I love my dad dearly. Um, he's still with us, but he did close the business in 2005. The joke, here's the joke. White America goes into business to make money. Black America goes into business to be the boss. <laughs> I love it. My dad wanted to be the boss. He had spent, I think, about 10, 12 years at Amoco Oil. It was Amoco Oil back then in Naperville, Illinois, as an engineer. And he got tired of working for corporate America. And uh, he wanted to do something different. And he wanted to be independent in a cultural context. The black community, we talk about being a free black man or a free black woman, being able to do what you want, have the resources to do what you want and you know, take care of your family. That was very much what my father's desires were. And that came from his father, my grandfather, who I've not mentioned, and my grandmother on my father's side were also from Mississippi and owned land. Um, and our family still owns a lot of land in Mississippi. And my father always wanted to cultivate that land, have his own business, kind of do his own thing. And so that entrepreneurial spirit was passed down to me indirectly because in 2003, after I'd spent some time working in a governmental environment as a lawyer, working at a small law firm in my hometown, and also in a corporate law firm in Chicago, I started my own law practice. And since 2003, I've worked for myself. I'm, I'm at a firm now as an of counsel partner, but one of the things that I like about our firm, we're the largest minority women-owned law firm in the country, Quinteros, Prieto, Wood, and Boyer, is that it's an entrepreneurial spirit. And so each lawyer kind of handles their cases and works their cases. So I've kind of been a, a free black man since 2003, because I like to work to be accountable to my clients and to my profession. I don't like to be controlled. If I gave you a background of my specific career and jobs I've had, the best boss I ever had was my first one. My first job out of law school was with a small law firm in Aurora, Illinois. And my boss then truly wanted me to be a master of our craft be a good lawyer. And he really poured into me the importance of being a good lawyer and learning the craft of research and writing and understanding legal analysis. But what I didn't like about the job, honestly, was when I was in his office one afternoon and I asked him for permission to go on a long weekend vacation with my then girlfriend. And I felt like I was in junior high again. I mean, I was a young girl, man. 
but I needed to get his permission to take Friday off. And I just, I didn't like that. And I, and I, and I said to myself, I want to get to a point in my life, I don't need permission. I love this streak of entrepreneurialism in, in what you picked up from your father, especially. But I want to go back to your childhood for a little bit, because you said that other kids in the neighborhood saw your family as being wealthy. And I'm wondering if you felt wealthy when you're driving around in your car as a high schooler. I didn't feel wealthy because I was connected to two worlds. Obviously, being an African-American in suburban Chicago, I was part of the, the Black community. So I went to a very traditional African-American Baptist church as a child, where most of my colleagues at church were from Mississippi, the families were. And perhaps in that particular context, I was considered wealthy, or my family was. But also because I was a student in a predominantly white high school and school district, where I was often the, the only African-American in my class, because I, I was in honors classes and I was in the band. I was kind of a nerd growing up. I was not one of the cool kids. But I hung out with a lot of white students whose moms and dads were bankers and lawyers, doctors. So, and I saw a different level of privilege. And so in my hometown, there were neighborhoods where the well-to-do white people lived. And there were certain schools they went to, like for junior high, and we all, for elementary school, and we would feed into the high school in the junior high. Well, I was probably in the next best neighborhood after the high-end neighborhoods. And I always knew that. And so I didn't feel rich compared to them because I would go to their houses for, you know, birthday parties and events that, you know, high school kids would have back in those days. And I would see a different level of living, if you will, a higher, a different standard. Again, we weren't poor, but compared to my white classmates who I was in the band with and had classes with, I didn't see myself as rich. But yes, compared to many of my African-American classmates, I did see the difference. And even within my family, my cousins who lived here, I saw that contrast. I saw both worlds. It sounds tricky. How did that make you feel, seeing the whole spectrum? It was very tricky then. I felt out of place often in both worlds. I grew up as the, I said nerd, kind of, but back in those days, I would have been called an Oreo. Most of my friends were white. Most of my social interactions were with white classmates. My first African-American girlfriend was not until I was a senior in high school. And I was kind of the black friend. The white kids weren't prejudice because Juan was their friend. And that's how they kind of talked to me and treated me. And I felt like I belonged in that particular moment at that particular time. The black kids treated me as, oh, you talk white, you act white. You know, I, I wasn't a very good athlete. I tried to play basketball. So I didn't um, fit into the stereotypes that we often put around young black teenage boys. In large part, that's one reason why I'm so grateful to my dad in particular, but my family broadly, 
because they really wanted me to go to an African-American college because they saw that I was lacking cultural roots. I was not grounded in my cultural experience. And so my dad pulled a little trick on me. He knew I liked to travel. And so he played on my habits of loving to travel because in high school, well, what I didn't share, I was the student council president my senior year in high school. And I was also, I found out later, the second African-American to become president of the Illinois Association of Student Council, a statewide group of student leaders. So I got to travel all around the state and I was, you know, Mr. President at 17. It was really cool. And so my dad, knowing that I like to travel, said, son, I'm going to let you visit colleges across the country, but I want you to check out black colleges. And at the time, I wanted to go to either University of Illinois or Georgetown. Georgetown was only because I loved the Hoyas and John Thompson, the basketball team. You know, they won the championship when I was in high school in 85. And I just thought they had, they were just so cool. And I love D.C. because I love politics and government, things of that nature. And so I went to Howard University. I went to Hampton um, in Virginia. But then I went to Morehouse. And for me, I saw something I'd never seen before, living in suburban Chicago. I walked into a classroom, and I witnessed about 25 or 30 African-American young men, teenagers, you know, 19, 20-year-old college kids, having a serious debate about the Fourth Amendment, search and seizure. And I saw an African-American professor teaching them and discussing with them in the context of the importance and the implications of search and seizure and how police conduct searches of our citizenry. It almost brought me to tears. I'd never seen African-American men in a classroom as a collective whole having a serious conversation. I'd never been around a group of African-American young men who I was just thoroughly impressed with. And so, and mesmerized by. And so I was captured by that and had to go to be part of that. So I went back to the admissions counselor's office called my parents back here in Illinois and said, I'm going to Morehouse. And that experience changed my life. For those who may not know much about Morehouse College, Morehouse College was founded in 1867 and is considered one of the premier institutions for African-American male educational development and achievement. And so Morehouse prides itself on building black male leaders. Certain people you may have heard of, like Spike Lee is a graduate of Morehouse College, Samuel L. Jackson, Maynard Jackson, one of my mentors, first black mayor of Atlanta. And this guy became a U.S. senator named Raphael Warnock. He's a Morehouse grad. And he's also my classmate. So he's class of 91 and I'm class of 92. So I know the senator very well. And again, those are the kind of men I went to school with. You know, these brilliant minds, highly accomplished, highly ambitious. And that just changed my world. Morehouse was the best single decision I ever made because it led to me making the best decision I ever made in my private life, and that's marrying my wife, because I met her through a Morehouse man. One of my Morehouse brothers introduced me to her, and he was the best man in our wedding. So I have probably several dozen nuggets of stories I could share about 
how Morehouse was filmed and just being part of that HBCU experience has blessed me. And my sister, I don't even hide, hide this, this truth. She's 10 years younger than me. And I planted seeds with her when I was at Morehouse for her to go to Spelman. And 10 years later, she went to Spelman and she's finished in the class of 2003. Well, and what a great story. I'd like to understand at this new stage of life, how are you thinking about your future? And you're in this amazing group of people. You've painted this great picture, the, the conversations. Are you all talking about your future and what you're going to do for your careers? Tell us a little bit about those conversations. Several things happened to me in college that impacted my worldview and my life. One thing I did not share with you was I grew up in Aurora wanting to be the first black president. And I'm still mad at Barack Obama. To it. <laughs> but I went to college as a poli-sci major. And most people that will, would talk to you about me will, would tell you, Juan Thomas always wanted to be in politics and to be a politician. But what happened in, in college for me was my political interests were deepened and sharpened because I began to think about and study issues. Prior to that, I was just mesmerized by the process. So Jesse Jackson running for president in 84 and 88, I was 14 and 18, you know, that captured my imagination. Harold Washington becoming the first black mayor of Chicago captured my imagination. But at Morehouse, I began to understand public policy and issues and the impact public policy has on black people in particular. I also grew in my faith tradition. I first had an inkling that I was called to the ministry in college, but I ran from my calling. But I was exposed to theological giants at Morehouse because Morehouse is a Christian-based institution, very much rooted in, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mention the fact that our most esteemed alum is this guy named Martin Luther King Jr. And so, I'm sorry, I should have mentioned him first, <laughs> um, instead of Spike Lee. But there's a chapel at Morehouse called King Chapel, named in his honor. And every week or every two weeks, we would invite speakers to speak at Morehouse to the student body. And so I was exposed to Andrew Young, Maynard Jackson, preachers like Calvin Butts, Otis Moss Jr., Charles Adams, Amos Brown. Jeremiah Wright, a host of others, who gave me a theological framework of deeper understanding about what it means to be a servant leader and to truly care about your people and God's people. And so that really helped me become more grounded. What Morehouse did not do, and what I want to also bring into this conversation, and one of the things that I really think about in the context of money is... Morehouse, and this is, this is not just about Morehouse, this is just that era in time and even to this day. We didn't spend enough time focusing on developing relationships that would last a lifetime beyond the social context, but specifically to build institutions, to work on public policy, and build a better community. And so... One thing that, that happens in the, in the Black community is that we talk a lot about hard work and being, you know, Black excellence and working hard and 
working twice as hard to get half as much. I'm 50 now, and I'm gonna be very candid. I'm tired of working that hard. I think that mindset is rooted in a notion of white supremacy and systemic racism that we need to tear down. But what Morehouse didn't teach me intentionally, and I mean intentionally, it was, it was done through the brotherhood. And we do talk about it, we have a very strong brotherhood. But what was not discussed was the importance of relationships. And what I've come to understand in life today is that education and hard work are important, but relationships and access are more important. And it impacts how much money you're going to make, what opportunities you're going to be exposed to, and what doors will be opened to you. And so I used to think being a Morehouse man was enough. I thought being a lawyer was enough. I thought being articulate and well-read was enough. It is not enough. And in particular, in the Black community, we need to spend more time understanding how America really works. And it works around relationships and access and exposure to people who have relationships that can open doors for you. And if I track every job I've ever had, Yes, my education was at the foundation. It gave me credibility and, and, and it validated me. But the, my first job out of law school at that small law firm in Aurora, Illinois, was because one of the lawyers at that firm was on the board of directors of my mom's work, where she worked. And one day after a board meeting, that lawyer asked my mom, how's your son doing in law school? And she said, he's looking for a job right now. That lawyer said, have him call me. And that's how that happened. And that has happened with almost every opportunity that I've had in my life. It's been because of a relationship. And that's something that I am being much more conscious about when I talk to young lawyers, young law students. Don't just network up with the partner of the firm or the the judge or the in-house counsel lawyer at the big corporation, network horizontally with your classmates. Because in 15 to 20 years, that classmate who you think is a knucklehead right now, they're going to be a senior partner at a major law firm. <laughs> they're going to be a judge. One of your classmates may become a U.S. senator one day. Be cool with her now. <laughs> If you don't stay in touch, if you're not connected, you can't call them 25 years from now and act like, hey, we were in school together. I need you to do me a favor. It doesn't work like that. Relationships. Yeah, you really did a, a great job highlighting the importance of that and maybe pointing out some of the challenges we have with the power of relationships. They're the only thing that really matters in life. I would even go further and say a relationship will open up a door that you may not be qualified to walk through, but will also give you a second chance if you don't deserve it. Mm -hmm. And candidly, if I could push this a little bit, that's one of the tensions in our society right now in race relations. Black America, we were fed candidly a lie. We were told, 
if you get a good education, if you work hard, if you stay out of trouble, you will be successful. You'll make it. We thought we'd be judged fairly. That's not true. <laughs> That's not how the real world works. The most qualified candidate does not always win the election. The most competent lawyer does not always get hired. The most accomplished professor does not always get tenure. I can tell you from personal experience and by observation through family and friends how unqualified people have been chosen, have been elected, have been selected and appointed because of relationships. I can tell you something that locally is controversial in, in my hometown right now. A year ago, I ran for the state legislature. I lost the election. I lost the election to someone because she had the right relationships with our state party and with certain local officials. Let me blow your mind. She was the incumbent. But I was endorsed by every major newspaper. So the Chicago Tribune, the Chicago Sun-Times, and a local paper called the Daily Herald all endorsed me based upon the merits. But she won the election. And no one, and I'm not disparaging her by any stretch of the imagination, but no one argued who was the most qualified. That was obvious. <laughs> but it was because the powers that be, relationships, put her in a position where she was able to leverage those relationships to raise the resources she needed and get out her message to win. And I will tell you, that happens all the time in our country. Access to opportunities, which often leads to money, is often driven by relationships. And I'm a big proponent, I'm trying to find more ways to, to show the next generation of, of professionals, yes, get good grades, yes, go to good schools, yes, be a master of your craft, but you have to build relationships. If you're the best lawyer in town, but nobody likes you, guess what they're gonna do? They're gonna hire the second best lawyer in town. This hasn't come up on Money Tales before, but I really appreciate you bringing this to life. Now that you are more aware in your life of the importance of relationships, can you tell us more specifically about how you have been approaching them differently and whether or not financial gain is part of your calculus? This year, one of my mentors from afar, I did not know him personally, I only met him once, the late Vernon Jordan, wrote a book called Vernon Can Read. And in his book, he says, you build a relationship when you don't need it. I'm paraphrasing. What typically happens with most people is that you call them when you want something. And in part, that's because all of us are just so very busy. So, you know, I don't have time to call Sandy and just chit chat for an hour. I got stuff to do. <laughs> and 
when I call her, she's going to be busy. You know, she's got a Zoom to get on and she's got a meeting to get to. And I mean, so that, that's one aspect of why we don't do that. But what I've discovered in another mentor of mine says he calls 14 people a day. Some of them are business calls. Some of them are personal calls. But he also makes a point to call some people just to check on them, see how they're doing. I've tried to be more intentional about that. And I think, again, young people, particularly young people of color, have to learn the importance of that. I try to preach that to young kids in college and law school. Build relationships when you don't want anything. When you travel, call a friend for a drink, for breakfast, for a cup of coffee. If you see an article online that relates to somebody that you know, send it to them. Those things matter. And this pandemic has taught me, you know, if not one thing, many things, is the importance of staying connected to friends and family. And so I try to make a conscious effort to do that. As you said, this time has really reinforced relationships. It's it's really where where life is. And you're a servant leader, so I know you know that. Juan, we, could we take this to a different angle and ask you, what is your relationship with money like? It has changed in the last 10 years. And that question allows me to offer this as context. I grew up in a household where I did not want for anything. But we didn't talk about money. And I think that's symptomatic of a lot of African-American families. We don't talk about money with any intentionality. And so I grew up having access to money. And the only lessons that I was ever taught were twofold. One, I had a great aunt who told me if I wrote her a letter every month about how I was doing in college, she'd send me some money. And my grandparents told me if I keep a certain GPA, they'd send money. So those were my incentives to keep getting money sent to me. Um, the second was somewhere in my early development, I was taught I should save money. And so I did say, and I still say 10%. If you give me a dollar, I'm going to put a dime in my savings account. But that's really where my relationship with money stopped. Until I, be, I got older and had an interest in public service and running for office and seeing how important money really is. And I say this all the time, and I'll say it now. Money is only second to oxygen. That's it. Don't take away my oxygen. Don't take away my money. And it's so critically important, oxygen and money. Oxygen is understood. <laughs> it's obvious. It's, it's innate. <laughs> you know, we can't have this conversation without oxygen. Money is really, 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 really close to that. I have a colleague who says, name a problem that money can't solve. And people get real quiet real fast. And we're not talking, you know, miracles, things, you know, you know but just, just normal, everyday, routine problems. Yeah, money can, if money doesn't solve it, money can sure help fix it. 
<laughs> make it a whole lot better. And so I have come to understand that. And I saw it during the pandemic. The pandemic really um, exposed the two Americas we live in, the have and the have nots. We saw it culturally, we saw it regionally, we saw it different professions. But we also saw, for me for the first time, we saw what I would call the global and America's obsession with money. Open up the economy again. We gotta get the economy back open. I gotta get back to work. Yeah, I know I've got these kids, but I, I can't not work. We saw the importance of the economy in very open, deliberate conversations. And what I've come to understand is that, particularly for African-Americans who often don't talk about money, many of us did not grow up in a community where we were educated about money. So for me, money was always a goal. But I've learned, no, that's the wrong view. Money is a tool. Money is a tool to carry out your values and what you believe in. You know, the old saying, show me your checkbook and I'll show you what you care about. That's real talk. Show me your debit card transactions. I'll show you what you care about, what's important to you. Money, and I'm gonna say this, and just to kind of, you know, be a little bit daring, after God, for me, and good health, money is number three. Wait, Juan, what about your family? Aha, glad you asked. If I have money, I can take care of my family. And that's what people do who have resources. So your money takes care of what you care about. And so God, health, resources. Because with resources, my children will go to good schools. With resources, I can pay my mortgage. With resources, I can take my family on a vacation. With resources, I can invest in my community. And so for me, money is now a tool to express my values and what I care about. And what I'm trying to do is to grow my tool kit, if you will, because what is the other disconnect in the black community is the lack of what I call, and it's not, it's not, it's not my term, it's a term that's used all the time, generational wealth, passing down. What happens in black America, each generation tends to start over. And so instead of my dad or my grandfather passing down the family business or a trust fund or a significant investment account or portfolio, they pay for me to go to school and then my job is to go out and get a job. And culturally, from no fault of our own, that was usually the only opportunity that we had. And so doors were closed, relationships were not cultivated because of systemic racism that led to black people only being able to get a job. They couldn't pass that job on to their son or their daughter. And so I think what black America has to understand is what white America has known for founding of the country. Family wealth building 
institutional building, generational wealth are critical to understanding how to build wealth long term and relate to money. And so I now have done something over the last 10, 12 years that my family never taught me. I studied the stock market. I just finished reading Peter Lynch's book, uh, One Up on Wall Street. I watch CNBC. I'm on YouTube, listening to different people talk about investing strategies and puts and calls and which stock to buy, you know, cryptocurrency, that's the new hot thing. I'm looking and I'm learning more about that. I'm trying to become a master of financial wealth and growing my resources because I wasn't taught that. And most of my peers weren't taught that. I was on a board where it was a black organization and we were debating if we should save and invest 10% of our resources. And these are professional people. And the board voted no. And I was shocked. And they voted no because they felt we didn't have enough money to save. And every financial advisor I've ever had, I've had three in my lifetime, have all said, that's the wrong mentality. If you have $5, put away 50 cents. Don't spend all your money. And so for me, I've seen culturally how my community has not been exposed to those opportunities, that education, because our moms and our dads and our grandparents historically were never taught those things. And so I'll say one more piece to this in the context of my you know, earlier career ambitions around politics. In 2008, Barack Obama ran for president. When I ran for office a few years later, I had friends of mine telling me, Juan, you are the second person I've ever written a political check to. I said, really? Who was the first? Barack Obama. My point is, political giving in the black community is a, is, is a new thing in the last 12 to 15 years. My wife's grandfather, his name is Bill Clay, was the first black member of Congress from Missouri. He was one of the founders of the Congressional Black Caucus. He's told me many times, he didn't, have to, he didn't have to raise a lot of money when he was in Congress back in the 70s and 80s. It was because back in those days, the black community had strong local organizations that supported their candidates, grassroots organizing. They didn't have to raise all this big money. And so he never had to ask people for a lot of big money checks back in those days. Well, those days have changed. But we didn't grow up doing that. And so for the black community, political giving is, is brand new for a lot of us. And there's no immediate return. So there's an education that's needed. The black community has been very good at what I call charity giving. We give the scholarships for kids. We give to our church. We give to our civic organizations. We buy tickets to, 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 to local dinners. But when it, and I call that charity. That's important work. It is important. But there's another part of giving called investing. That's where there's been a disconnect. Because when you invest, you don't get the return that afternoon or that evening or that next week. It may be five years from now, maybe 10 years from now. You may never realize it. It may be 
realized by your children and your grandchildren. And so that's the education that's needed in, in my community now around financial literacy and financial education, the need to invest and see money as a tool, not a goal. And I'll throw in one little caveat, and I talk like this to my friends, and you all are my two newest friends. Being active in a variety of organizations, I'm blessed to live in the black civic world and the white civic world. And it's fascinating to me to hear the different communities talk about money. It's like night and day. And I just chuckle when I hear white people talk about financial problems. Because what's a financial problem to white America is often would be considered a blessing in black America. So I'll give you an example. There's an organization that I won't name, but it's a majority white organization, where they were having to spend money out of their reserve account to cover their operational expenses. And they were spending millions of dollars over a course of two years out of the reserve account to cover their operational expenses because they were losing membership. And they said, we got to stop doing this. We can't keep taking money out of our reserve to pay for our day-to-day -day expenses. And I just chuckled because I said to myself, most of my black organizations don't have a reserve account. <laughs> they couldn't function. <laughs> like, because they wish they had a reserve account that they had to dip into to cover their day-to-day -day or, or monthly needs. But it's a different mindset. It's a different mentality. When you are exposed, when you have opportunity, when you, have, when you see money as a tool, not a goal. And so many of my white organizations, and I say white in the context of majority, not, you know, they're not all white. There are, I mean, I'm a member, so they let, it's not just white people, but they have investment accounts. They have financial advisors and planners that meet with the board, that talk to them. Candidly, I'm in very few African-American settings where we're having those kind of conversations. And that's what I want to change. Because I see, it's not that we don't have the desire. We, we haven't had the exposure. We haven't had the opportunity. Well, and it's fascinating that you, for your whole life, have had one foot in the Black community, one foot in the white community, and you continue to see all these differences. With that as context, I'm wondering, what's your next money conversation going to be, and who's it going to be with? And I'm trying to figure that out. Not to be a self-promoter, but I am really in the process of working through my own podcast, and I'm having conversations about how to do that. because. The focus of my podcast would be having this conversation connected to education and politics. So the, the title would be The Ballot, The Book, and The Book. And that comes out of a Atlanta, Georgia politician named Mayor Jackson, who talked about that when he was running for office. And he learned that from his grandfather, trying to empower the Black community. And what I want to do is connect the ballot politics, the book education, and the book money in the economy to each other. Often we talk about these things in silos. And so I have a, a quote here that says, for a community to have, to have a social justice plan, 
without an economic plan is like one hand clapping. And because I live in the legal world, I live in the faith community, I live in the political community, I see the intersection. And I see the need to connect issues and challenges around these topics. And so when I think about my next money conversation, it's in that context. But it's probably going to be, to be more personal, more specific, my family owns some land in Mississippi that we have not cultivated. My sister and brother and I need to have a conversation about that. It's been in our family for 50 years. My parents are aging. They're not going to do the hard work. But my sister, who's 40, myself, who's 50, and my brother, who'll be 55, we're still able-bodied enough to make some things happen. Well, and we wish you a lot of luck with that. It sounds, both of those conversations sound heavy, but they are worthwhile. And we wish you luck with both of them. Juan, I feel blessed to be one of your newest friends, and I look forward to working on this relationship. I hope we can continue this conversation. Thank you for having me today. Sandy, what was your biggest takeaway from this powerful conversation with Juan Thomas? Cammy, Juan spent a lot of time talking to us about the importance of relationships and how integral relationships are not only in our personal lives, but in our money lives. And I appreciated what Juan had to say about taking time to invest in nurture relationships because that's what life is about. The people we know and have connections to at certain times in our life will likely help us out or will help them out. And they can become important parts of our money stories. I think one of the keys of having strong relationships with people is being able to talk to them about important topics and to be able to express your vulnerabilities. And talking money with people in your life is certainly a great way to really forge that connection in my experience. What about you, Cammie? What was one of your biggest takeaways? He positioned his upbringing as being in this this world where he's straddling the African-American community and the white community. He talked about a lack of intergenerational wealth transfer within the African-American community and that each generation has to start anew. I believe, once again, what you just talked about, Sandy, just by having these conversations and raising awareness around something that's so critical and important to solve is one step and really important for us as a society to be aware of this issue and know that by having these conversations, we're going to be much better off to be able to solve this chasm that shouldn't be there. Juan talked about many different examples of how money is used differently in black and white communities. And that was eye-opening for me. And a lot of it has to do with systemic racism and people are really focused on solving today, which I'm, I'm excited and hopeful for. And I think Juan's perspectives of, of how uh, African-American nonprofit organizations run compared to how predominantly white nonprofit organizations run 
was really interesting. And I'm so excited that he is using the insights and observations that he has to bridge that gulf and bring the communities together so that ultimately there will be no differences. He pointed out the African American community talks about working hard to get half as much. And when he said that, I, f- I just felt awful. And that's why we talk about this stuff, because I think feeling awful is, is the first step. And what can I do? What can we all do to help reconcile this? Because it's not right. It really isn't. Kimmy, I also liked how Juan talked to us about how he now sees money as a tool and not as a goal. And I thought the evolution of that thought process was really interesting and was something that definitely resonated with me and I'm hoping will resonate with our Money Tales listeners. And that is that we can use money to achieve what we want to achieve, but achieving money in and of itself isn't a goal that doesn't lead to anything. That's not a fulfillment. Mm-hmm when we can use our money to make the world better, to achieve the things that are most important to us, that's when life really feels good and sweet. Juan talked about an exercise that I am going to do. He said, Juan said, show me your credit card transactions and I'll tell you what you care about. I've heard that before and it it absolutely makes a ton of sense, but I've never done the exercise and I'm going to do the exercise. I think there's a lot of things you do as a, as a, as a human, it's the human state to assume, you know, the answers. So I've, I'm sitting here before I've done the exercise going, Oh, I know where it goes. It goes towards family and health and things that I prioritize, but I'd be kind of curious and I'm going to do this exercise. So I'll share my answers with you, Sandy. Oh, I can't wait to hear it. I can't (laughs) wait to hear it. That's awesome. Maybe our listeners will do something similar and, and share with us something you learned from that exercise or even more importantly, what you took away from this conversation with Juan Thomas. Yes, please reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. And we thank you for being with us each week. And we thank Juan for this really, really insightful conversation. I enjoyed getting to know him. And I definitely feel like I have a, a new relationship in the world that I'm looking forward to nurturing as the years go on. Me too, Sandy. Relationships are rich. And so to our listeners out there, We are developing a relationship with you as we share these money tales. Please reach out to us at podcasts at Asperient.com. And thanks for listening and sharing these episodes with your network. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cammie Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales.